Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Exodus chapter 3 tonight, Exodus chapter number 3. Julie and I were driving home. This was, I suspect, um, maybe two months ago, uh, three months ago. We're driving home, and I think it was either after a Wednesday night service or a Sunday night service. So we're driving home, and we're about to pull into our neighborhood, and I don't know if she saw it or I saw it, but there was something in a beautiful sky. I mean, the sky was dark. It was one of those moonless nights, so the stars were, were really pronounced. But something caught our attention in the sky, and it was unusual. So it's not the kind of thing that, um, that you'd say, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. In fact, what we're looking at, we had never seen before. It, it, was, um, it was unusual. What we saw was an array of stars, and it looked like two slanted lines of stars that were moving across the sky, and they looked just like stars, but stars in array and moving across the night sky. So we we watched it as long as we could. Some of you are kind of like, oh yeah, I I know what that is. Uh, But we didn't, of course, so we looked it up, and we found that it was a series of satellites that had been launched, and I don't remember what they were called, and some of you are, are already aware and you know what it is, but it was some array of satellites that were launched, and so they're going to go into orbit at different times. In other words, they're going to break away from this array as they, as they find themselves in the orbit. It got our attention because we look up into the sky and we see stars that are scattered, We sometimes find some meaning or some image and we call them by different constellations. But when they were in that order, it was what we would call unusual. So often throughout Scripture, God does those things that get our attention and we say, wow, that's unusual. It's actually the title of the message tonight. It's a simple title and and quite honestly, a simple message. But the title is simply, That's Unusual. There's a passage of scripture that we're going to look at and it's found in Exodus chapter 31. And I'd like us to read the passage. It's the passage that we would certainly say, wow, that is unusual. Look at it with me, if you will. Exodus chapter three, beginning in verse number one. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Well, that's unusual. Moses had been now on the backside of the desert for some 40 years. So he was accustomed to the sights, the sounds, the smells of the desert. He was a shepherd. He's functioning in a role that he has become quite familiar with. In fact, time has a way of doing that. It produces some familiarity, some level of comfort, and and we get accustomed to the usual. 
And here, as Moses is out tending to the work of a shepherd, he's caring for the flock, and he looks, and maybe it was over a ridge, I'm just imagining, but he sees this little tuft of smoke that's coming up, and and it, it arouses attention. Now, that in itself is not alarming. He's seen things burn before, but he goes, and upon further investigation, he sees that this bush is burning, but it is not consumed. It would have been out of character or certainly out of the context of the, the, the setting for Moses to have just kind of crossed his arms and said, that's unusual. Never seen that before. So now God has his attention. And he starts to move towards this bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. When you look at, at lists that people have put together regarding Old Testament miracles, this one does not usually appear first. You know, those, those miracles that are connected to what's about to happen after this are usually mentioned, but clearly this is what we might refer to as one of those first occurrences of God interrupting the natural order of things and doing something quite remarkably unusual. So God has his attention, and this seems to be the pattern that God continues throughout the course of the Old Testament. It's not his exclusive pattern to say, whoa, that's unusual, but it does seem to be a fairly normal pattern. Now, I just started to jot down a few of those unusual occurrences in the Old Testament. I mean, we, we of course know that we have the plagues and the, the things that, that were done with Aaron's rod, and we understand all of that, and we know about the parting of the Red Sea. Clearly, someone could look at that and say, that's unusual. The pillar of, of cloud by day, or by, uh, of fire by, of, of cloud by day and fire by night. We understand that people could look at that and say, I've never seen anything like that before. That's unusual. As they're traveling, you remember the time when they're three days out and their water is, is absolutely absent. And so they're, they're having children pull on their robe and say, Mommy, I'm thirsty. And, and of course, three days without water. And the, the crowd all of a sudden begins to surge forward because they hear someone shout water and so people instinctively begin to hurry toward the pool of water that's before them and again this is just imagination but someone jumps in and and when they come up out of the water they are shouting the word mara mara it is bitter water and so now the people are looking at Moses and say, did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? And Moses looks to God and God says, go, go take the, the tree. Do you see the tree there? I see it, God. And, and take the tree and cast it into the bitter water. And so Moses takes this tree and he throws it into the bitter water. Again, it's imagination, but Moses then, I think, says to the guy who came up shouting Mara, he says, take a drink. And the guy says, no, it is Mara, you know. And, and Moses says, drink. And Moses, it is drink the water. And so he goes and tentatively puts a, a little hand because he's just tasted the water that is, it is bitter water. It's not drinkable. There's something wrong about the water. But now he goes and he takes his hand and cups it and brings up the water and a little taste to his mouth and and he says, it is good water. That's unusual. And what a powerful picture. A tree that makes the bitter sweet. And 
God's already giving us these powerful pictures that the bitterness of Calvary, a tree, actually is that which provides for us living water. And he just keeps doing this over and over again. I, I was thinking about, you know, in the same setting, the same people when they don't have any food and, and God now showers the earth with, with this little wafer, you know. And people go and they pick it up and they literally say, what is it? Which is the meaning of the word manna. And they pick it up and they taste it and like, oh, it's good. And, and the Hebrew actually indicates that it tasted like Krispy Kreme donuts. And so they, <laughs> they try it and it is good. And, you know, people are saying, wow, that's unusual. Like every day we come out and there's new food. That's unusual. I read this, I reread the story today of Balaam. It's humorous to me. In fact, I don't know why I've never seen this before, but, you know, Balaam is riding his donkey and, and uh, the donkey veers off to the side and he yanks it to the, you know, back into the way and a little bit further, the, the donkey goes off again to the side and he just is angry and he pulls it back. And, and finally, the third time, it's just in this narrow pass and it slams him up against this wall and and he gets off and he beats the donkey and he's, he's so angry and, and the donkey begins to speak to Balaam. And the donkey says, all the years that you have been with me and I have been with you, have I ever done this before? And to me, at least part of the unusual aspect is that, that Balaam doesn't stop and say, my donkey is talking, you know? <laughs> and he has this conversation with the donkey. And, and the, so the donkey is being the reasonable one. All the years, the donkey says, all the years I've been with you, have I ever caused you a problem? And do you know what the Bible records as Balaam's answer? Nay. And in my, <laughs> in my mind, I could hear how he said it, you know. All these years, my, nay. You know, it's just one of those. So who's the, who's the donkey in the story, you know? But uh, a donkey that's talking, we would clearly say that's unusual. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story about the, the young prophets. So if you're a, one of the guys that's uh, one of the ministerial guys, they go to, to Elisha and they say, hey, we got to build some bigger, bigger uh, housing for us. And so Elisha gives his approval and they go out and they borrow some tools and they have this axe and, and one of, the, one of the, the ministerial guys, the young prophets, you know, he's swinging the axe, he's trying to fell a tree and as he does, he swings and um, maybe he hit it wrong, I don't know, but the axe head goes flying and it lands in the water, in the river. And the young prophet, like, wow, man, to have something iron, uh, you know, have something that you can actually fell a tree with, very costly, um, far beyond his ability to replace. And he says to Elisha, alas, master, for it was borrowed. And, um, and Elisha performs this miracle, and the Bible says that the axe head swims. And again, I have this mental picture, you know, this axe head and these little arms that are doing the backstroke, you know. And <laughs> it's just one of those things where, can you imagine all the young prophets like, whoa, that's unusual. It's the kind of thing that we just never see. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're cast into the fiery furnace, Daniel chapter 3. And, and it wouldn't be odd for anyone to be standing there. I mean, certainly the fire was so hot that the people who threw them in, their lives were consumed. 
They, they lost their life. And there are other people that are standing back, way back, and they're looking and they're saying, I've never seen anything like that before. That's unusual. Throughout the Old Testament, it seems that God just continually was doing those unusual things almost like he's doing it to us, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm doing something so that you'll see the unusual. But there also seems to be some transition that takes place from the Old Testament into the pattern of the church era, the age that we're in right now, where the unusual thing is not that which is happening to But now the unusual thing about the day that we're living in is that the unusual thing so often seems to happen through, like through us. It's not that we're the spectators of of what is unusual, like we look and we say, well, that's unusual. Now we actually are, are part of that story where people are looking at us and, and I'm not being silly about this. I'm not trying to be un, unusual in a strange way. It's not that they're looking and saying that's strange. They're saying that's, wow, that's unusual. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse number 18, something of the pattern that we had. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his, here's the word, peculiar people as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldst keep all his commandments. Okay, God's saying, I want you to be this special group of people. And then he's not saying this, he's he's not saying, you have to promise me. Isn't it interesting that he says, just like I promised you, I'm the one making the promise, you're going to be this special people to me. He brings this idea into the New Testament and he does it in Titus chapter two, verse 14. He says, who gave himself for us, that's Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So again, I just looked up the word peculiar. I found this quite insightful. The word peculiar, the Greek word that is used for peculiar here, it actually means simply this, beyond usual. Beyond usual. What you might expect to see from another person when you look at God's people, they look at God's person and they say, wow, that's beyond usual. Not in a strange way. Not in a way that we'd say that's off-putting, that's offensive, but in a way that a person looks at and we say, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. That is clearly beyond what we might call normal or usual, it's intriguing to me that he should purify and set apart for himself this group of people that when others look from the outside in, they're saying, wow, there's something that has my attention right now. And it is beyond the usual. So let's consider Christianity and this idea of, oh, that's unusual, as it pertains specifically to settings that we find ourselves in on a rather recurring basis. 
Uh, Most recently, we had one of those shocking, abrupt losses where death is one of those things that is right before us. It's one of those things that is rather jarring, quite honestly. You have this this, this, uh, kick in the gut kind of response to what you know when someone starts a conversation, but you don't want to hear the rest of it. What is so unusual about a watching world that is viewing how does a Christian respond to that which everybody on this planet faces? It's a good question and something that I think is important for us to at least consider. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, he's speaking to believers, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. There's a little expression there, and it says, even as, even as. It means to the same degree. We might say, I'm not in the same way. It's not that Christians don't grieve, of course. It's just that there, there is something uniquely different about the way that a Christian grieves and a person who is not part of what the Bible is referring to here as the brethren. So let's ask the question. I know I, in part, gave the answer, and I think it's, a, it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but do Christians grieve? Now think about this. How many of you have ever been to a, a, a funeral service, what we call sometimes a homegoing service? How many of you have ever been to one of those where a poem begins with something like, um, don't weep for me. And you ever feel strange about that thought of don't weep for me. And then sometimes at a funeral service, we even hear some admonition like we, we know that the, the person who's gone would not want us to mourn their loss. Have you ever heard that expression before? So do Christians, um, are we just supposed to, forgive the, the silliness of this, but just put on a happy face and, and let's, let's just show the world that we are, in, in a different way, a peculiar people. You may have heard people, of course, say things like, we're going to experience today at this memorial what we're calling a celebration. So how do we, as Christians, grieve and celebrate? Is death for the Christian one or the other, a celebration or what we might even refer to as an abomination? If it's a celebration, why does it hurt so badly? If it's an abomination, why do we not grieve just like everyone else? So just two points tonight and we'll be done. First, what we do not celebrate, and that is separation. Most in here would know what word we always associate with the word death, and that is the word separation. We make that connection and it's an appropriate connection. Why is it that we don't celebrate death? Well, because of where it came from. 
The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and, do you see these words? Death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay, so when we start to think about death, is death this celebration? Well, well, where does death come from? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. We understand that a passage of Scripture that you probably learned early on. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, separation. That death could be viewed in a lot of different ways. Certainly physical death is something that we all understand the gravity, the weight of. But it could be death of a relationship. It could be death of a future. It could be death of a marriage. All of that, we understand the reality of the word separation. Death itself. Now, please know, I know that death also is a doorway for something, but death itself is not a good thing. It is here because of sin. It was not a part of God's original creation when he pronounced all things good. Death remains our enemy. The Bible clearly says that 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed. We're not talking about this thing that that is a celebratory opportunity because death has come. No, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We can empathize with Mary and with Martha and with those that were grieving the loss of Lazarus. Jesus does the same. And and the one who came to offer life weeps with those who are experiencing the reality of death. Why does Jesus weep? For so many reasons that, that I would be foolish to say, here's why. But could it be at least in part that the tears of Jesus were there because he knew the enemy had struck again. The one that he did come to vanquish. The last enemy. The greatest enemy. The most fearsome enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed. The enemy had struck again. And as he looks around, he sees the reality of death and by it, separation. What do we not celebrate? You could say death. I use the word separation. We don't celebrate this. What do we celebrate? Reunion. Reunion. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says, For to me, to live is Christ. To die, isn't that a great word? And, and what a strange union of thoughts and ideas. Now we have this very strange two seemingly opposite thoughts that have been merged together in this one tight thought. For to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. 
We might want to ask a couple questions. First, who is it that's experiencing the gain? And to be quite honest, it is not us. We're experiencing the result of death, separation, pain, loss, and death does hurt. The gain is for the believer who is now absent from their body and they are present with their Lord. So think about it this way. One moment we're in this broken, sin-cursed world, and the very next moment we are in the presence of absolute perfection, glory unimaginable, a union that will never be dissolved. What is it that we celebrate? Not separation. We celebrate reunion. This is the gain for the believer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 6, the Bible says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. <laughs> right now we walk by faith, but not by sight. Do you remember the passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12? It says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. You, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever seen the videos of normally early toddler ages, very young children who, um, who are born with impaired vision? Everything they see is cloudy. It's not clear. Have you ever watched the videos when they take those little toddler glasses? They're kind of rubberized and, and they're usually colorful. And there's a band that goes all the way around. And, and they're going up to the child and they're going to put something on their face that they've never had there before. That's a little frustrating to the child. There's something that they're going to have to accept that they've never had to have before. And so they work and sometimes the child resists or fights against it, but they take these glasses and they finally put those glasses over the face of the child. And then you see the child begin to look with a clarity they have never experienced before. There is some sense of wonder when those glasses finally adjust to their eyes and they start to look around. There's no more fog. There's no more blurry images that are moving around. They look and then invariably, whoever's doing the video, they show the child look into the face of their mother. And there is something profound about what takes place on the face, in the eyes, with the mouth of this little toddler who is looking with clarity for the first time into the eyes of his mother. Now we see through a glass darkly. A person here who knows Jesus Christ, you look to him every day. You want to see him more. I want to know you more. I want to understand you more. Oh, Lord, let us see. Sir, we would see Jesus. But think about the day when you have this unhindered view. No more glass darkly. Then face to face. 
No more knowing in part, but then like, oh, now I know you. Even as also you right now, Jesus, know me. What a strange twist of ironies that a Christian can simultaneously grieve and rejoice. To me, a watching world must look at that and see something that is quite unusual. I've often been a bit bewildered at why as Christians we hurt so badly when another Christian dies. It's because we are experiencing again the high cost of sin and the separation that it produced between God and man. And I thought this, and I don't know if this is completely accurate, but I think it is. I wonder if God has allowed, because sin came and death by sin, I wonder if God has allowed us just an inkling of understanding of what took place in the heart of God the moment Adam and Eve spiritually died. And what groanings happened in the heart of God when the separation took place between the pinnacle of his creation and the creator. There's something that can't be contained in the human heart when we experience the reality of separation. It's just like we weren't built for that. And there's some pouring out of grief and anguish and hurt and pain and it just hurts. And I wonder if we have just a hint of a feeling of what happened in the heart of holy God when mankind spiritually died and the first separation that was ever introduced between God and man happened because of sin. We're about to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Easter. It's the day when we remember powerful passages just like this. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. A burning bush certainly does conjure the statement, that's unusual. A grieving Christian that can both grieve and celebrate at the same time is to me more powerful than a bush that burns but is not consumed. Campus church, when the old enemy, death, comes, we do not celebrate him. We grieve over the high cost of the rebellion of mankind and the curse that came as a result. But when a believer dies, we do also rejoice. He is absent from his body, 
He is present with the Lord. To do both at the same time, that's unusual. And it is a powerful testimony to the unusual grace, the timely strength, and the ultimate victory of our loving Savior, Jesus the Christ.